me, Ellie Krug, Ellie Duporno Radio. I hope I got you there. <laughs> you, I hope you were like, yes, Ellie's signature introduction. <laughs> I am thrilled to be back. Welcome to Ellie 2.0 Radio. You have me. I am here. The last two weeks, you've had to get pre-recorded. Sorry about that, but I am here. I am thrilled to be talking with you. Happy Pride Month here in the Twin Cities. Happy Pride Month across much of America. Um, we have a great show with you. The big interview is with Erin Reed. She happens to be transgender like me um, and with a voice that I am incredibly jealous of. Um, but she is a national blogger about what's happening across America as it relates to trans people. And, and let me just tell you, she does incredibly great work, and we're going to talk about that work. And then in my C block, I'm going to talk about my work as an idealist, okay? But in the A block, where we are right now, let us talk about our featured idealist. And this week, the idealist is not an individual, but an organization. And it's one that many of you might be familiar with, at least by name. I'm speaking of the Southern Poverty Law Center, which was founded in 1971 in Montgomery, Alabama. The founders of the Southern Poverty Law Center were three lawyers, Morris Dees, Joseph J. Levin Jr., and Julian Bond. Julian Bond had served in the uh, Georgia... Um, legislature. Um, the three of those lawyers intended to create an innovative civil rights law firm where they would fight poverty, racial discrimination, and the death penalty. However, in less than a de decade, their strategy expanded to suing to collect civil damages on behalf of victims of violence caused by hate groups. Now, remember, if somebody hurts another person or kills them, okay, that's a criminal violation. You can go to jail. But at the same time, you can also file a civil case, and that's to collect money damages. So, so what the Southern Poverty Law Center did, what they came up with this very innovative strategy is that, okay, you hurt somebody, you kill them, that's fine, but we're going to go after you civilly. We're going to take every, like literally every cent of everything that you have to reimburse the, the family of the person who was hurt or killed. Among the most prominent of the hate groups that the Southern Poverty Law Center went after is the Ku Klux Klan. And beginning in 1980, the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center started suing Klan's groups and Klan's men involved in the shooting of various people like a black woman in Decatur, Alabama, and harassment including cross-burning and, and sniper fire uh, directed at Vietnamese shipper, shrimpers, S-H-R-I-M-P-E-R-S, um, in Galveston, Texas. Um, other cases including, included suing three members of the white Aryan resistance in Portland, Oregon, for the fatal assault of an Ethiopian man who had, you know, came to the U.S. to do what many people want to do, go to college. And they beat this man in uh, downtown Portland, and they beat him to death. The uh, SLPC was able to get a, a verdict against those Aryan nation um, defendants for $12.5 million. I actually, there was a documentary about that case and I watched that several years ago. The Southern Poverty Law Center's litigation efforts have run the gambit, including suing a Florida sheriff over the condition of a juvenile detention facility, um, lawsuits against private prison contractors in Mississippi, and then suing the Daily Storm, Stormer, um, that very, very, very fascist type paper, uh, for its anti-Semitic harass harassment of a Montana real estate agent. While all of this litigation is extremely important, 
The Southern Poverty Law Center may be better known for its hate map, which is an annual uh, census of hate groups targeting marginalized populations in the U.S. And by the way, the last time I looked at the hate map, there were at least four groups on that hate map in Minnesota, just so you know that, Minnesotans. Um, and this includes listing various groups and individuals as extremists. Most recently, and the reason I'm talking about the Southern Poverty Law Center is because there was a story just yesterday about the Southern Poverty Law Center listing Moms for Liberty. You know what that group is, the book banning, school board packing, and so-called parental rights group. Um, they have now been listed by the Southern Poverty Law Center as extremist. That no doubt will cause ire among various conservative groups. I'm also certain that the Moms for Liberty is going to probably fundraise off of that because that's the way things go now. If you get labeled as a hate monger, guess what? You can, you know, make money off that. Um, yeah. Uh, in 1991, the Southern Poverty Law Center recognized that the best way to, to battle discrimination and marginalization was to get at its roots. So... Um, in 1991, uh, it created one of the first diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. It called it Teaching Tolerance. That project has now been relabeled as Learning for Justice, in part because the SPLC re realized that the word tolerance is too low a bar for how to interact with diverse humans. And throughout its 53-year history, the Southern Poverty Law Center has become one of the largest civil rights legal advocacy organizations in the country. It now has close to 500 employees and an annual budget of more than $100 million. Its endowment is nearly—now get this. Its endowment—that's like investments in the stock market and all that. Its endowment is nearly three-quarters of a billion. That's with a B, dollars. And, of course, the Southern Poverty Law Center has won numerous awards and accolades. However, putting aside all of the good work that the Southern Poverty Law Center has done and continues to do, the organization has been the subject of considerable, hold on, Ellie, controversy and upheaval. That includes Morris Dees, one of the Southern Poverty Law Center founders and a personal hero of mine. In fact, I, back in 2018 when this show LE 2.0 radio started back. I think it was the sixth show. I highlighted Morris Dees as an idealist. He is a personal hero of mine. But in March of 2019, the Southern Poverty Law Center fired him. Okay. Because of concerns about quote, racial and gender equity concerns at the organization, unquote. That was then followed by the Southern Poverty Law Center's president and legal director resigning. This is all in 2019. And then later that year, the Southern Poverty Law Center staff voted to unionize, in part because the SPLC employees of color felt that they were the victims of racial and gender discrimination. So think about the irony there. Additionally, the work of the Southern Poverty Law Center hasn't, unfortunately, been without risk. For example, in July of 1983, after more than a decade of being in existence, the organization, its building in Montgomery was firebombed. Um, and it destroyed the building and all the records therein. Subsequently, two Klansmen and a Klan sympathizer pled guilty to that firebombing crime. Morris Dees himself has been repeatedly threatened with assassination. Altogether, more than 30 people have been jailed in plots to kill him or to blow up the Southern Poverty Law Center offices. 
And lastly, for a number of years, I was a regular Southern Poverty Law Center donor. Um, but I stopped giving uh, when the 2019 controversies over internal racism and misogyny surfaced. However, I will tell you, as I prepared this report for you, it appears that the Southern Poverty Law Center's new leadership has really tried uh, to positively overhaul the organization. It's now headed by a woman. Uh, she seems to be doing some incredibly great work as their executive director. And I foresee me, Ellie Krug, resuming my donations to the Southern Poverty Law Center. I urge you to consider supporting this incredibly idealistic organization too. At the very least, go online, read up about its past and current work, which is so incredibly important. So there you have it, our Southern Poverty Law Center as our idealistic uh, featured organization of this week. Um, when I come back, we're going to do the big interview with Erin Reed. You're going to love the interview. She is a trans woman out of Montana, and uh, she... Uh, She's doing incredible work. I'm actually quite jealous of all the, the impact that she has across America right now, simply by reporting what's going on in the country, all the marginalization against trans people. You know, I talk about that quite a bit on the radio. For some of you, maybe I talk about it too much. Sorry, okay? But not really sorry, because we got to talk about it, okay? Otherwise, you don't know about it. All right, when we come back from our break, we'll do the interview with Aaron, and then after that, my C-block. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug. One of the relatively few transgender radio hosts in the world. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Go follow me on Twitter. It's at Ellie Krug. And we'll be back in a second. Thanks. And we're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio. It's time for the big, the big interview. And I am thrilled um, to have Erin Reed on the line with me. Erin is, is a trans woman um, who is, uh, I, I think maybe the word activist would be a great phrase, but she is also a blogger and has an incredible newsletter and, and puts out Wonderful, wonderful content about what's going on across America as it relates to trans people. Erin, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. How are you? Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I'm doing great. So, Erin, um, uh, I really appreciate you being on the show. Tell, can you tell us a little bit about you? Yeah, of course. So, um, I have been tracking LGBTQ legislation for the last four years. I have watched every single bill as they have moved through the U.S. state houses, all 530 of them. I know that your listeners will probably know many of them, like the Don't Say Gay bills and the drag bans and the gender-affirming care bans for transgender people. And so in watching these bills move through the United States, I, about three years ago, started to um, write about them. You know, I, I tracked them on Twitter. I started posting about them. And very quickly, um, got to learn how to read them, how to work with the activists, and how to understand, like, where is this all going? Where is this coming from? What are the cultural movements that are at play here? And and what is happening out there in the world? Uh, so I, I wrote about them. Um, I created a TikTok account that many people would probably know me from, where I just sit and talk about all of this. And, you know, I've 
reached hundreds of millions of people with, uh, with the content, with the writing, with the, with the work, just so that I can better educate people on what the heck is going on out there with trans people and with the laws that target us. Okay. Well, thank you for doing the work. It's so incredibly important. Um, very incredibly important. So, so do you have like a, do you have a network of other people? Maybe they're trans or maybe they're not, um, in, in various States who keep feeding you information because I mean, I, for one person to keep track of everything, it's gotta be pretty impossible. You know, it's, you are right about that. I do have people that I speak to in every state about the legislation as well as the local environment, things that are going on with healthcare clinics, with schools, with, you know, People are struggling right now. A lot of trans people are really struggling right now, and LGBTQ people are really struggling right now. But if there's one thing that is part of, you know, what it means to be trans or queer, it's that we have existed for a very long time, and we we are everywhere. Like we we exist in every space. And you know, I be it from you on the radio to uh, the governor of Montana's own child is non-binary. You know, there are they, we are everywhere. And so the, the important thing about that is that. We are there to help each other. We are there to cross these gaps in our society and to give each other helping hands on getting through legislation that makes it very hard for many of us to exist. And I, I will also say that this is not the first time, and it won't be the last time, that we as a community have been targeted. The reason why we are celebrating Pride Month right now in June is because 60 years ago, people in the Stonewall Inn were also targeted by bans on drag. That is how they were arrested. That is how we got pride. And so collectively, um, we do, we help each other. We give information to one another and we ensure that people are hearing our stories. Well, and in a second, I want you to talk about your newsletter and, and all of that. But, but tell me, um, since you've been doing this for four years and writing about it for three, um, why don't you give us a synopsis of where everything stands? We've got 530 bills. How many states have banned gender-affirming care for trans kids? How many states have, have um, imposed uh, um, bans on trans kids being able to play sports, which usually is about trans girls playing sports? You know, give us a little bit of quickly of the synopsis, if you would. Of course. So as of right now, we are at around 19 states that ban gender-affirming care for transgender youth, but also some of these states are banning it for transgender adults, such as Florida. Missouri tried to do a very similar thing recently. And so these these are bills that essentially will step in between, you know, families, patients, and doctors and say, no, you're not going to do this medically um, uh, consulted on uh, treatment. Instead, you, you're banned from it. And this can be very harmful for transgender youth, uh, trans teens who perhaps have been transitioned for a very long time and suddenly have to go through um, the puberty of their assigned sex at birth. It, it can be very yep. traumatic for, for this population. Uh, we also are seeing uh, six states that have banned drag in public. Uh, so, you know, the way in which they define drag is in and of itself patently ridiculous. You you see definitions for drag and, like, what drag is, um, like, for instance, in Montana, of uh, you cannot exaggerate gender by wearing flamboyant makeup or clothing. And, like, you read the definition and you realize, that, like, they just banned glam rock. They banned clowns. They banned Dolly Parton. <laughs> they banned pro wrestling. They banned, right. they banned cheerleading. You know, Texas, Texas's bill, if you read Texas's bill, 
Like the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders are technically illegal under this bill. It's it's ridiculous, but this is how far they are willing to go in order to ensure that like LGBTQ people do not get to be in public. You know, yep. it, it's it's terrifying. A, a transgender speaker in Montana, for instance, was banned from from speaking publicly um, because of the fact that they are trans and they were going to speak in a library and they were just going to speak about LGBTQ history. Like that's all it was. It was a trans speaker. And they ruled uh, this, this local library basically ruled that this transgender woman was in violation of the drag law. And so, you know, it makes it hard to, to, to exist in public. It's like they start saying that you're, that clothing in and of itself has some sort of a biological sex assigned to it. You know, is it kilt a male or female item of clothing? You know, so, so we have these drag dance. Sure. We, have, um, we have bands in, in public schools on, on like, using pronouns and such. Um, we see sports bands. Obviously, that's something that's out there. We also see uh, uh, laws that say that you cannot use the restroom of your assigned sex, of your um, of your gender identity, and that you have to use the restroom of your assigned sex at birth in Florida. And in Florida, they would, you know, put you in prison for a year if you did this. And they tried this in North Carolina, and it was a disaster. Because when they did it in North Carolina, suddenly... You found that large, bearded, muscular men were walking into women's restrooms because, believe it or not, they were assigned female at birth and they were trans men. And it just blew everybody's minds. And they realized, like, this law is terrible. And Florida's going to do the same thing right now. Well, I always joke about that because um, I date men. And, you know, at least when I get the makeup on and I look reasonably decent, um, you know, I mean, I don't know how many wives want me to be in the restroom with their husband. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, but, but yeah, no, it's, it's ridiculous and it leads to ridiculous scenarios. So let's talk about this though. Let's talk about the, the difference between 15 and 16 when North Carolina, you know, tried to introduce HB2 and, and there were, well, they did introduce it, they passed it. And then there was this backlash by corporate America, by, America in general. And, and let's juxtapose that to where we are in uh, 2023. What, what do you think happened to cause the country to just kind of throw its arms up compared to what happened in North Carolina, okay, to where now, you know, we got 20% of the country, um, uh, you know, a fifth of the country where, you know, trans kids and youth can't get gender affirming care. You know, we've got, um, what is it? It's probably what, 22 states banning uh, sports for trans kids. What, what do you think happened to enable all of that? Was it just fatigue that people just got tired of trying to stand up for trans people? What? Uh, no, so it was, it was a coordinated strategy. It was a blitz. And like, there's, we, we saw what happened in 2016. They did the bathroom ban, and that, that set back the anti-trans movement by four years because the North Carolina bathroom ban was so disastrous. Every single time they tried to introduce new bills, they failed dramatically. Nobody wanted to touch anti-trans legislation because it was seen as, as, as just completely politically suicidal. And 2020, 2021 happened, and we have organizations like the American Principles Project and the Alliance Defending Freedom, we have them on the record as planning exactly what is occurring now. And the way that they did it is they said, number one, we got to focus on a different issue than bathrooms. We need to focus on something that's going to be easier for people to to agree with. And so they went with sports because if you can accept an asterisk on our identities in one place, 
you can you can make it easier to accept that asterisk in bathrooms and in and in, in use in schools, et cetera. So they started with sports. And then the second thing that they did was they instead of doing it in one state, they copied the legislation and they found a good legislator or, or um, a, a sympathetic legislator in every in every state. And they had everybody release it all at once. Pattern and pattern so it legislation. A lot harder. Exactly. And so it becomes a lot harder for businesses to boycott a state if you've got 15 states that are business friendly that are doing it at the same time. Right. And it's also easier to get these bills passed if you've already sort of gotten your foot in the door with like a sports fan. And so that's what we're seeing now. I, I don't think it's, it's fatigue as much as it is a blitz. It's a coordinated strategy. But I will also say that the coordinated strategy against LGBTQ people has galvanized a large movement and a backlash to that. So, for instance, we have 13 states or 12 states right now that have passed safe state laws, laws that essentially say if you get to our borders, we will not extradite you and allow for the investigation of your care over state lines. And so, you know, we see more states that are becoming friendlier, adding more policies that protect LGBTQ people and their borders. And by and large, we tend to find that while these laws are getting through, they're not popular. Like they're, the laws themselves are not, they do not have high popular support. Fox News just recently did a poll showing that 84% of people view the attacks on transgender people in America as a major or a, or a problem. Okay, well, that poll is great, um, although there was a poll that came out right before we did the show, which showed that the vast majority of Americans believe that there are only two genders and, you know, you're essentially, yeah. you know, stuck with what you were born with. Um, and, and, you know, you know what's, what's interesting about that, and that's the PRRI poll, read that poll this morning, is that you tend to find that whenever you ask people about, like, their personal beliefs, they might believe one thing or another. Whenever you ask people about the care that, that we receive or, you know, any, any one particular issue around trans people, they might believe one thing or another. But also, the, the vast majority of people understand that they don't want our government spending their time on this. The government yeah. of Nebraska spent 81 days targeting trans people. They could not pass a single yep. other bill because they had to work on this for 81 days. Go, 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 Michaela Kavanaugh. Yep, yep. Exactly. And I think that, like, what we see is that, yeah, people might believe whatever they want to believe about trans people and about, like, are there two genders or not. But in reality, they also know that whatever they personally believe like, this isn't something that they want to legislate. This isn't even something that they want to be all public about and conf- confrontational about. Everybody has their own beliefs and their own opinions. But we also believe that we in America have the right to bodily autonomy. We are a supposedly free country. And we should be allowed to uh, experience all of the joys that comes along with the pursuit of happiness in this in this country. Okay, so Aaron, you've got your literally your finger on the pulse Let's talk about what do you think next year is going to bring? And God forbid, 2024 goes the wrong way. What, what do you foresee for trans people and non-binary folks? Yeah, yeah so, so 2024 is going to be hard. And I've, I have repeatedly tried to get people to prepare for 2024. I don't think that there will be any advancement on this issue in blue states and purple states. Because what we have found is that moderate states and uh, lefter-leaning states are very much against any kind of legislation like this politically, like at the, at the highest level in the legislative chambers. 
But in states that are very heavily right, right-leaning, uh, they have chosen us as a group to pick on, to pick on for political points, and they're going to try. And that's going to look harsh in 2024. It's going to be very hard. Um, and so I, I'm anticipating further further bills. I have tracked these bills for a long time. I see the bills that are that failed this year. And one of the stories about this legislative movement is that the bills that failed that failed this year are the same ones that will pass next year. Yep. And so you can see the things that failed. You can see the drag bans that failed in most states. And I can tell well, you that next year there's probably going to be more drag bans. There's probably going to be harsher drag bans. Well, you know, uh, you can. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, what I was going to say is, I mean, what I'm concerned about is that the next round, okay, the the draconian round, okay, will be laws that that say that it is illegal to present in public in a way that is inconsistent with the gender you were assigned at birth. That's what I'm, I mean, I'm anticipating that that'll be the next round. Whether that's constitutional, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't matter. It, what matters is the cruelty and the galvanizing for the support around the, that, those kinds of things. Do you think that that's unreasonable unre- on my part, that that's, that's coming around, you know, around the bend? I think that one thing that we have learned is that the people that are pushing these laws have no floor. You know, whenever, whenever you see Michael Knowles stand up in front of the Conservative Political Action uh, Conference yeah. and state that his aim is eradication— like that—that's absolutely like that is part of the goal, and we've had, we've already heard Ben Shapiro state that he believes that next year, uh, local and city council should start outlawing male and female impersonation, quote unquote. And so that that would be exactly what you just called for. So, yes, I think that that is very much a fear. Uh, but I will also say that yes, there are obviously constitutional issues. The drag ban was already defeated in Tennessee. We already got a, a, um, a victory in Florida against the gender-affirming caravan there. We have continually won these constitutional cases, but the harm still happens, regardless of the, right. the wins or losses in the court. Like, the harm still happens. And so I will also say that the community has survived many of these attacks for decades by by banding together and being there to support one another locally. If there's one thing about the LGBTQ community, we are part of what it means to be human. We have been around for generations and generations, and the way that we have always survived the worst of attacks is by finding our local community and seeking solidarity with so many other marginalized people. And we are doing that right now. You see that there are strong ties between the, between the LGBTQ community and the disability rights community and the LGBTQ community and the fight for bodily autonomy and for abortion access and for all of these things. And that is because we know that collectively we are stronger and we will face whatever they bring at us by just existing. You know, our joy will be our resistance. You know, um, I agree with everything that you said, but I'm also mindful of the fact that you, I mean... I don't know how old you are. You appear to maybe be in your late 20s, early 30s. I'm in my 60s. We have um, some res- uh, perspective and experience and grit and resiliency. What I worry about is our, you know, our 10-year-olds, our 15-year-olds um, who don't have that kind of stuff and yeah. how this messaging uh, affects them and makes them feel, you know, lesser uh, and, and, 
And then, you know, when you feel that way, there's not much left for you to, to hang on to. Um, Aaron, we, I've got to watch my time here. Let, let me, uh, first of all, can you let everybody know, plug your newsletter, okay? Plug, you know, how people can follow you because listeners, Aaron has the most authoritative, informative stuff. If you get, uh, listeners, if you get my newsletter, The Ripple, you know that I linked to Aaron's uh, map of the U.S., kind of codifying where all the laws are and color-coded as it relates to trans people. So, Aaron, how can people find out about you? Of course, your listeners can subscribe to me at AaronInTheMorning.com, where I write about at least one of these bills or cultural issues around LGBTQ people every day. They can also find me at Aaron in the Morning on TikTok, Aaron in the Morning on Twitter, and on Instagram. I try to make sure that all of the information that I put out there is accessible and digestible to everybody who needs it, regardless of platform. You know, if there's one thing that I aim to do with my reporting, with my work, it is to get people to understand what is going on in this country and to help them understand these issues. Because right now, education is one of the biggest needs whenever it comes to LGBTQ people and how we are perceived and understood by people around us. So if you want to help educate yourself, I I highly recommend you at least read my content on one of those platforms. And Aaron, what's next for you, okay? Um, You as a human, I mean, you're doing this reporting, but, I mean, do you see yourself running for public office? Do you see yourself trying to found a nonprofit? Um, So my my fiancé, Representative Zoe Zephyr out of Montana, is uh, first transgender representative there. She's the public office holder. I am not a public office person. I find my work here in this room right now to be my most important. And I don't foresee that changing for at least the next five years because we will have to roll back, you know, so many of these laws and it's going to take some time. And so for now, my goal is to get our stories out there and our voices heard. And if we do find a day where this room is no longer the right room for me and where we have found liberation against all of these oppressive laws that are targeting us, then I might step away and do something else. I would love to no longer need to do this work anymore. And the day that that comes, the day that I am put out of business, the day that they stop me from writing because there's nothing to write about anymore is the day that I am happy. I can go into the next phase of my life. But until then, this is what I'm doing. Okay. So, and that leads us to the question of what made you an idealist? You know, you and I, uh, before we got on the air, we talked about the fact just simply being transgender certainly can make you idealistic, but what is it about, you know, a life experience that you had, or maybe you had a role model in your life? What, what made you so idealistic want to try and make a positive difference in the world? The young people, it's it's the people that are, that are younger than us. It's the teens. I remember being a 14 year old trans girl in South Louisiana in the nineties. And it was impossible to transition. It was, it was so hard, and I was bullied relentlessly, and, and things were difficult for me, but I knew that there was a better world waiting, and, and it was right. You know, I, I now fast forward 20 years from now, and I look back. I look at the Gen Z coming up and, like, fighting for the things that they believe in. I look at, at, how, at how strongly they support their friends and peers, yeah. and I myself got contacted by a trans girl in South Louisiana who said, Aaron, I love your content. I just wanted to let you know I am 17 years old and I was nominated to the homecoming court. And I cried because I remember how hard it was for me back then. But it's easier now. She's accepted. 
she's celebrating. They drove her around the football stadium sitting in the back of her car with her dad waving at everybody. That's what makes me idealistic. I know that the, that the generation that we're fighting for, the people that we are fighting for, we're leaving a better world for them. Well said. Good. I'm, and thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And thank you for all of the advocacy. I am just thrilled that you exist and that you're doing, and you do very professional work. It's not, I mean, it is of a very, very high caliber. And so I just really appreciate you taking the time to be on my show. And uh, listeners, make sure you check out Aaron in the morning on the various uh, platforms. I think, Aaron, all they have to do is Google Aaron in the morning, right? And they'll be able oh, yeah. to find it'll you. Be, it'll, be, it'll be easy to find me, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Aaron, and uh, Aaron is spelled E-R-I-N, everyone. Last yep, name E-R-I-N. is Reed, R-E-E-D. All right. Well, listeners, um, uh, and, and uh, Aaron, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so very much for being on LE 2.0 Radio. I really appreciate it greatly, and I wish you the best of luck. And if you ever need any help on this end, let me know, okay? I'd be happy to help you out in any way that's possible, all right? Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. Okay, great. Listeners, all right, that's Aaron Reed. Check her out, Aaron. Uh, Aaron in the morning, um, various places. When we come back, we'll do the C Block and my work. I'll talk about my work as an idealist and uh, some of the things people are saying about me as I try to be a unifier. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio. Um, if you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. We'll be back in a second. I'm back. Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio on lovely AM 950. I bear, I haven't even talked about being in the bunker today. I'm in the bunker in, in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. Okay, uh, Aaron Reed, um, very wonderful um, person and great work that she is doing. And I'm incredibly jealous uh, about her voice. Um, so some people get a little bit of luck in that category or some people get bad luck. I think that's, that would be me with these pipes, but that's life. That's the way it goes. And, um, and it was really great to hear about her being, um, engaged to, to Zoe, uh, Zoe out, you know, the Montana state rep, uh, because I, I featured Zoe as a featured idealist, idealist several, several shows ago. All right, here we go. My C block. My work. So long, not e- I don't even know if you need to be a long-time listener, but you know I'm a unifier, okay? I am not a divider. Rarely, if ever, do you hear me on this, on this station, on this show, ever railing, okay? Yes, those who, people who are trying to marginalize transgender people, LGBTQ people, yes, I'm railing against them, but you don't see me... Lock and stock, you know, saying them against us. I, I, I don't do that. I, I believe that, as you have heard me say multiple times, that 98% of all humans have good hearts. 2% very challenged, but that the vast majority of us, vast, vast, vast majority of us are compassionate people. We are. When we're given the choice to identify, that is how we identify as compassionate people. And I believe that. I do. And so my goal 
As you may recall, I ran for the school board and was elected out in eastern Carver County, a red county, red to purple county. And, um, and my goal in running was, you know, first of all, to help support our students and their school district because they really, it's an excellent school district. And our educators are incredibly wonderful. I don't even know if I can get the right word to say how, how much I feel about how feel good about all the work that they great work that they do with our students. So I, that's one of the reasons I ran. Another reason was representative for me to be on the school board. I think I'm the first. I, I'm positive. I'm the first, at least, openly LGBTQ person on this school board, um, and. Um, you know, and, and, and be able to have a say about what's coming down the pike. I mean, those are all the reasons. But in the process of that, you know, that election was contested. There were four seats that were open. And, um, and one of, you know, and there was a block of four conservative uh, candidates who ran, wanted to take those four seats. But only one of them got elected, okay? And only one of the four... And then I got elected, okay? I came in third. He came in fourth in terms of the vote tally. And he and I have developed a friendship. Now, if you get the Star Tribune or if you go to elliekrug.com, you'll be able to find it uh, somewhere on the website. But the Star Tribune uh, two weeks ago um, put out a story about um, my, my work as an idealist, my work at trying to bridge our divisions here in our country, but particularly in Carver County, my work around gray area thinking, the training that I do, that is about a tool set on how to be welcoming to anybody as different or others. The Strip did a, an incredible Sunday, you know, feature story about me. Okay. It was on the front page and then a whole page on the inside of the Star, uh, Star Tribune. And in that though, there was a reference to this, that, that conservative school board member who got elected um, along with me. And about how he and I have formed a friendship. And I think his quote was to the effect of, you know, if I, a conservative Christian guy, can, you know, be friends with a transgender Buddhist transgender uh, woman, um, there's some hope. I'm paraphrasing what he said. But it's true. You know, we have formed this friendship. Now, I want you to think about your days on the on the uh, playground when uh, you saw kids start to hang out with the kids that were the ones that were the misfits, okay? Or the kids that were of different skin color that nobody would hang out. But I want you to think about the kid, maybe it was you, who said, I'm going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to buck um, social pressure and I'm going to go be friends with those people, those who are other. Um, I want you to think about that example, okay, because I'm experiencing that right now. Uh, I am hearing from various, various sources, various sources. I'm hearing that um, people are concerned about my friendship with uh, this uh, conservative board, school board member. I'm hearing that, well, I've heard, I've heard on one hand that I'm just being used by this person. Okay, I've heard that. And then I've heard, um, you know, that people are concerned, what, what do I truly believe? Okay, am I really, am I, you know, kind of a hidden, was I a Trojan horse in some way? I mean, Jesus, I'm transgender, a lawyer, and I mean, really? But nonetheless, okay, I'm hearing all of that kind of stuff. Pushback about me befriending this person. 
Now, he and I don't see alike on everything. Trust me. We're going to have our disagreements. Trust me. But we're also going to see each other as humans. And that, you know, that, that it's possible to have a friendship without, you know, having it to, you know, without it having to be totally one way or the other. I mean, my long-term listeners here, the folks that are my age, you may remember that's the way politics used to be. You know, where you disagree on the floor of the house, okay, but then they'd all go out and get drinks afterwards, okay? I mean, that's the way it used to be. And that was about understanding that we can have our differences, but that does not mean that we have to demean or diminish another human. And so just last night, I mean, last night I was um, having um, dinner with, uh, with somebody I really respect, and, and, uh, but I was hearing this. I was hearing about, you know, how can you do this? How can you be, you know, friends with this person, particularly with some of the things he said or some of the positions that his conservative group is? To, how can you do that? Okay. You know, and my response back is I am modeling. I am modeling what it means to be a unifier. I am. Now, I got, you know, I got some pretty tough skin. And I mean, it, trust me, it doesn't make me happy that people who voted for me may be questioning why they voted for me if I'm friendly with this person. I happen to be friendly with everybody else in the school board as well. Okay. Uh, so I'm not particularly happy that people may be questioning that. On the other hand, I got elected to lead. And leaders lead. That's what you're supposed to do. And so I will continue to model unifying and not dividing. Now, does this mean he and I are going to become the best friends in the world? No. Okay. But it does mean for sure until something horrible happens, which I don't think will happen, that um, I will continue to be his friend. And I think he will continue to be mine. I know that he's getting some of the same pressure on his side of the ledger from his people. Okay, well, listen, there you go. That's Ellie Krug. That's idealistic what I just said to you, okay? Unifier, not divider, leading. I'm going to lead. All right, a big thanks to my producers, Brett Johnson and Patrick. Uh, Patrick had to do some math again today. Patrick is always doing math for me. Thank you, Patrick. You do a great job. And to you, my listeners, um, I'll be back next week. And uh, we got a whole month of me being here. And and, uh, I don't know what I'm going to have for a show next week. We'll figure that out. But if you like what you hear... Tune in, tell other people about this show. Innovative, different, not many of this. And between now and the next time you hear my voice, go out and do good. Bye-bye.